know a mom and pop shop. Maybe it's the corner florist or the bakery that's been in business since you were a kid. Something reassuring about how these places seem to last, right? Especially in places like Portland, where we see a lot of flashy startups. Mom and pop outfits may be small, but they are mighty. They create around 70 to 80% of all new jobs in the U.S. Welcome to Biz 503, where today's topic is small, family-owned businesses that have stood the test of time. I'm Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project, here with Mark Grimes from Netspace. We're starting today by asking a couple of stalwart business owners what they've done to thrive over the years. Welcome to the studio, John Helmer III, third-generation owner of John Helmer Haberdasher. Great to have you with us, John. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. And Steve Stanich, second generation of Stanich's, the iconic burger joint on Northeast Fremont. We're happy to have you with us, Steve. Thank you. Well, let's start, John, by having you tell us, you know, sort of the history of John Helmer. This goes back to your grandfather's day. Yes, that's correct. So our business, John Helmer Haberdasher, was started started in 1921 by my grandfather, and we've been in the same location since 1927. Was he a first-generation immigrant from Sweden? Yes, yes he was. He immigrated turn of the century, I believe when he was about 17 years old. He actually came twice. So he, his mother in Sweden took him to the uh, local dry goods store, and he had an apprenticeship there. So that's how he got his start in clothing and fabrics. And I'm not quite sure how he came to the United States the first time, but we have his ticket that he purchased to get over here, the kind of exciting original ticket. And one of his first jobs was, it's kind of like a Downton Abbey. One of his first jobs was he had a job with a wealthy gentleman. They owned some large department stores, and he was the servant to the servants in this house. He slowly worked his way up and eventually became the gentleman's valet and traveled to Europe five or six times on across the Atlantic. And he was in charge of this gentleman's clothing and his tobacco and his alcohol. That was <laughs> because back then you gotta have you gotta have the right clothing for the right time of day, the right event. And so that was his job. And then he eventually he went back to Sweden. A friend said, Hey, I'm I'm heading to Portland, Oregon, why don't you come with me? And he said, Okay. So he ended up here in Portland, had a couple of jobs in some other clothing stores, and then as many of us do, wanna kinda have your own business. And so he opened up a business with a partner. He kind of had the haberdasher side, and then his partner had more the sundries, newspapers, and tobacco side. Haberdasher, in case you're wondering, many people think it's hats. But haberdasher really started off, it's an old English term, as fabrics, tailoring goods, tailoring accessories, needles, things like that. In fact, in England, if you go ask for a haberdasher, that's where they send you to a, a tailor supply store. But here the name has kind of evolved, and it's men's accessories which are cufflinks, sock garters, tie pins. Because in the old days, there was suit shops, there was shirt shops, tie shops, hat shops. And so haberdasher was kind of accessories. It slowly evolved now where it includes hats. And I think most people probably think haberdasher is a hat store. And we go with that, too. But uh, there has been an evolution, and it may change again. Who knows? My grandfather started in the where the Bank of California is now, down on southwest Washington. That was kind of the men's clothing row back then in the early 20s. But then he kind of wanted to do a little more of his own thing and moved up to the corner of Southwest Broadway and Salmon. 
1927. And so we have still a great old picture of the year after he opened. It's just kind of grown from there. He, you know, my dad bought the store from my grandfather in 1956, the year I was born. And then my dad remodeled the store and expanded to the corner. So he was just over from the side of the corner, if you're familiar with our location. And I think they put you in the window as yes. a baby. Um, oh, yes, nice. I didn't know that story was out, but yeah, that is correct. Um, and people would go by and then come in and say, do, do you know you have a baby in your window in a party during the remodeling? So I had an early start. Yes. That's some marketing right there. Like that, that is, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was just wondering if you remember your grandfather. Yes, yeah. I do. Yes. Yeah. He passed away when I was probably 14 or 15. So I got to work with him a little bit. So that was, yeah, that was kind of cool. And he worked in the store probably just up until a few weeks until he passed away. And my dad passed away five years ago and he was working you know up till a couple months before he passed away so i guess there's uh writing on the wall for me perhaps we'll see (laughs) steve can you kind of tell us the the hero's journey with stanich's and how it started and kind of started with a paying a medical bill i was in 1948 i was a couple months premature and uh taken early and to save my mom's life and they didn't give me uh much of a chance and it was a horrendous hospital bill and my dad was working for the railway express which was down by uh, the train depot and was a uh, accountant i was in uh, probably there weren't even incubators i was in the hospital for a year and that uh, you can imagine even back then the cost so my uh, dad and mom got an opportunity to get into the restaurant business and it, they borrowed the money from both my grandparents and uh, was in shock that when they found out later that they had loaned them it was a, a not a whole lot of money but it was everything they had Wow. So, uh, in fact, my grandmother, who I think about a lot, never made more than 25 cents an hour and uh, was Norwegian. And her husband died going over the border as a fisherman at 30. So my grandmother raised four daughters at 25 cents an hour and and loaned my dad $1,000 in 1949. So I think about that a lot. So that's how it got in. And it was a it was a second business. And in the 50s, people don't realize this, but there were taverns and there were bars. And taverns didn't serve hard liquor. And taverns had to close at 1, and the bars stayed open till 2.30. And people would pay literally thousands of dollars to get a liquor license. Mm. And my dad always wanted one, but he was just in the tavern business. And what happened, what changed is in the 60s, only males, most of uh, in the 50s, went into taverns and all of a sudden in the 60s pool came around and what we call the original wine cooler which was vin rosé and seven up etc all of a sudden (laughs) our business went from you know maybe 25 burgers a week to hundreds when females started coming in and obviously females attract the males and it was a totally different deal but probably in the 50s there were taverns and then there were you know nice places where you took your dates etc and the and the taverns were kind of where guys hung out and hit in the neighborhood <laughs> and then in the 60s it just went crazy and we went literally overnight from a couple of burgers to a hundreds of burgers and and it, the word just spread through word of mouth you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> and we appreciate it. You know. I 
mean, that is really an interesting historical perspective Mm -hmm. that with the influx of women to the taverns and bars, you know, business boomed. But you always stayed, uh, John, in mainly the men's clothing store. That's that's correct. Yes, yes. Although we're now carrying ladies' hats after a few years of spouses coming in with their husbands and saying, hey, where's hats for us? You know, so. (laughs) Very interesting. Well, let's talk about some of the pressures that you've seen over these decades. Stephen, just to clarify, you are the second generation owner of yes. Stanich's, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you kind of grew up in that tavern in a, in a sense, right? Yes. My uh, sisters, one's a teacher and one's a uh, nurse. My sisters and I all grew up there and my mom obviously uh, was involved and it was their second job, but it was also became the, you know, it was seven days a week. Everyone is still involved, actually. Let's hope they never put you in the window there to bring people no. in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And, John, you've even got your son working with you yes. now, fourth generation. Yeah, fourth generation, right? yes. Wow. So we'll see what happens. He's 25. So let's talk about what you've seen over time. How mm-hmm. have you seen business change in downtown Portland? Well, you know, our store on Broadway and Salmon is kind of at the edge of the core. So we're – and there are no retail spots beyond us. There's a performing arts center, so that draws a lot of people now. But that's only recently, maybe, I'm not sure, 15 years, 20 years. So before that, we were always kind of on the edge, and we get customers walking up that little stretch of Broadway. It's kind of up a hill and said, I don't remember you were up this hill this far. <laughs> you know, so when I started, I bought the business from my dad in 1982. That was right in the middle of a pretty severe recession at that time. So my dad had six stores at that time, and he sold the others to a partner and sold the downtown store to me, the original store. And so when I look back, even though, yes, you could look at it that the business was handed to me, I had to really build it back up at that point. We were, it was pretty tough. I mean, it was kind of just my dad and I, maybe we had one other employee. And so my dad would say to me, you know, we could, we could just run this business ourselves, just you and I. It's grown a lot. And growing up with Portland, Portland has really improved nicely too and our neighborhood has improved wasn't always the best neighborhood just that section of so this is a tough question for a family-owned business do you want your son to take it over or what's what's the family dynamics like there yes so i think probably yes that would be wonderful if that happens but i know that family businesses are tough i mean we we got along fine and and i had a great relationship with my dad too my grandfather and my dad didn't have quite as good relationship and i think credit to my dad he said, you know, if my son takes it over, I don't want us to have the same relationship. So I owe that to my dad. So yes, that'd be wonderful if he decided to do it. I try to keep low pressure. I'm sure that it comes out. But now I'm trying to really be hands-off because it's it's the customers that come in saying, you've you got to take this over. you got to keep this business going. We don't want to lose you. So I don't have to say too much. And I, I know he realizes it. But retail, you know, you've got to really love it. You're there. People expect you to be there all the time. So, Steve, talk about the family dynamics at Stanich's. You also have younger generations working there. Yes, we have my uh, daughter graduated from Oregon and my uh, nephew who was a 4.25 student my dad's probably shaking his head in electrical engineering <laughs> and there's some jobs there and he's our he's our number one cook they don't want to give up Stanich's and it's uh, the restaurant business any banker will tell you that probably 85% don't make it five years 24-7 whether you're open or not phone's ringing. I really have tried to discourage them, but they're gung-ho. They want to keep it going and to the next generation, but it, it's a very difficult 
difficult business, the restaurant business. And we've been very, very fortunate. My parents never advertised, so their form of advertising was little league teams and giving back to the community. So they were kind of the pay-it-forward generation. We got probably 30 little league teams and college teams and everybody else that we support. And so the word of mouth, it was interesting when uh, you talked about your son. My, I have a 19-year-old that's at Arizona State. You know, I hope he uh, doesn't get involved because I know that you're on call mm-hmm. 24-7 and, you know, you never know how long your life is. But with my nephew and my daughter, gung-ho, uh, if he wants to get involved, the opportunity's there. Sure. But, uh, mm-hmm. That's so interesting, yeah. isn't it, that you're the one sort of going, wait, maybe you, you don't want, want to, to stay exactly. in the restaurant business. And they're saying, no, this is a tradition, mm-hmm. a family tradition. We well, want to Well, I was this. at age 40, I was the head coach and head business teacher at Central Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I'd been a coach and teacher all my life, but my I'm sure he understands your father's calling in every shift, et cetera. So I was really working at Stanich's. As put in two places. Putting, mm-hmm. Actually working there more than maybe at Central Catholic. And so he wanted me to get involved, and I didn't want to give up coaching. And at age 40, I gave it up. And we had a pretty good run for 22 years at the uh, west side, now back. But I, if I had it to do all over again, I'm I'm a little jealous of my sisters that are staying in their chosen field. And I've been, we've been very, very fortunate with tremendous loyalty from Portland. And uh, and the more we give, it seems the more we receive, et cetera. But it's, uh, maybe it's at my age, you know, I'm burned out and tired of the phone calls, et cetera. But it's not an easy, and I'm not saying, you know, woe's me. I'm just saying I want everybody to be happy and enjoy their lives. Sure. There is an ethic, though, that yeah. is with your generation specifically, I think, that has fallen away somewhat about taking those calls personally, because it was not difficult for me to get a hold of you as it happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I called Stanages and they uh-huh. said, call this right number, here. and it <laughs> was your office. So, uh-huh. <laughs> And actually, when I called John Helmer, mm-hmm. she said, hang on a second, and you picked up nice. the phone. So that you know, that, that says is, a lot about the business mm-hmm. and the brands that you have both built yeah. and continue to build at Portland. Sometimes you don't want to answer it, though. <laughs> but, but, but you have yeah. to. You right. have Who's to. calling? Yes. We all have those calls. Exactly. But people really do appreciate that. You mm-hmm. know, come in and they're kind of shocked that there really is a John Helmer. And Right. And PCC's business blog just published an article that talked about the ways that small family businesses, you know, really can shine. And that that's certainly one of them, that personal connection. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We'll take a break and come back with two women who know a lot about Portland's business scene and the significance of small family-owned businesses. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Biz 503 and Portland Radio Project. I'm Mark Grimes of Ned Space, hosting today's show with Rebecca Webb of Portland Radio Project. We're delving into the world of mom-and-pop shop. It was really fun chatting with those guys, Steve Stanich of the historic burger joint on Fremont, and John Helmer, the third generation haberdasher, <laughs> that's how he said it. <laughs> and joining us now, we have Suzanne Stevens, editor of the Portland Business Journal, and it's good to have you back, Suzanne. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. And also, 
Sarah Shaul, owner of Black Wagon Boutique and consultant to the Portland Small Business Advisory Council. Welcome. Welcome. Um, thank you for having me. Suzanne, what have you seen happening with uh, small businesses and mom and pops over the last number of years as opposed to the startup world? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. As I'm sure you know, Mark, I mean, at the Portland Business Journal, we write a lot about startups and kind of the software technology scene, but it's been really interesting. And there's been a lot of dynamic changes in that world, very fast changing. I think the same is true for those kind of consumer-facing businesses, the mom-and-pop stores, the retail stores. Sarah and I were just chatting about the many challenges that are out there now for small businesses, particularly of the brick-and-mortar type. If you're renting, it doesn't matter if you're renting a home or you're trying to rent a business, you know, the real estate market is a huge challenge right now. I think there are also major challenges when it comes to getting permits done in a timely manner and, you know, uh, just challenges with kind of working through the city uh, bureaucracy that's there. And I I don't say that in the most, I don't mean that to sound as negative as it sounds, but when you talk to any business owner, you'll hear a lot of frustration around, oh, I've been, you know, waiting for this permit or waiting for that. So I think those challenges have only gotten heightened as Portland's uh, economy has increased. There's a lot of benefits to that. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly, you know, people have more money to spend. They have more money. Those are, those are positive things, but there are many challenges that have come right along with kind of the rising economy here. And speaking of the rising economy and the rising uh, real estate prices that go with that, are there pressures? Have you seen a lot of pressures on little operations, mom and pops who've maybe owned uh, their building for decades to sell? I think there's always going to be pressure if you own real estate, uh, whether it's a home or a business, uh, you know, a building, there is going to be some pressure to, to sell. You know, I mean, you, running a business is hard and it takes a, it's a, it's challenging. It's time consuming. So if your passion is not kind of where it was when you started that business, say 10 or, or 20 or even 30 years ago, you know, the idea of selling can be very attractive. You know, you get a good amount of money in your pocket. And if you're anywhere close to maybe thinking I'm going to, you know, move out of this uh, business ownership world, it can be a very appealing option. I would imagine another appealing option would also be to shutter your business and to lease it out to a to another business. The business of move. subleasing. If yeah. you own the property, right. it might make more sense to bring in a, a different tenant. I think we have seen some of that, Rebecca. You asked about the challenges. I think we have seen some of that in kind of Old Town, Chinatown, and there's been some you know, concern when it comes to historic preservation and that long history that a lot of Chinese-owned businesses, families have had there, that we have seen some being really tempted to sell and then move out, and we lose that, you know, maybe moving out toward further out on the east side where you're seeing kind of a concentration of business out there. And you you know, you kind of lose that. We love that about our downtown. It's dynamic. It's That's one of the most diverse areas. So I think there is some concern when you look at kind of the fabric of Portland, that that's one area where we might be seeing some turnover that uh, we'd rather not see as a community. Absolutely. I was having coffee with uh, Tim O'Brien with Tropical Salvage a couple of weeks ago. He was over in the kind of Montgomery Park area and he had a five-year lease. He, two years left to go. All of a sudden next door to him moved in Amazon. And then the other side moved in Amazon. And he knew right there, it was time to start looking. So what are you telling? Or what kinds of questions are you getting? And what are you telling the small businesses? Just to get you up to date, I resigned from the Small Business Advisory Council a few years ago, actually. I had been a pretty active member for about five years. And, it, you know, it's, any organization needs to have fresh sure. blood in it. But I got involved, as I was sharing earlier with Suzanne, because I just didn't buy this idea that Portland was not friendly to small business. And I thought, you know, I just think small business owners are so busy in their day-to-day, they just don't have the bandwidth or the ability to 
connect with city leadership. So I was going to be that conduit. So that's why I got involved. Um, I, I have to say, after my involvement, I learned pretty quickly that I now believe that Portland is not small business friendly. I think they like to uh, talk that talk, but I don't think they walk that walk. Very <laughs> interesting. Would you please elaborate? Give us some examples. I really don't think they understand how small business operates. I think they think there's a lot of wealth. If you if you own a business, that equates wealth. And I think they when they get frustrated and don't know how to solve certain problems, they think, okay, we got this uh, group here we can tap into. And we're, we're talking about things like the street fee, for example. When you looked at those numbers, it was just insanity. It, it showed, obviously, an ignorance about how the, our, these businesses operate. I was probably the most liberal person on that council, and I have to say the deaf ears on the suggestions about how to roll out the paid sick leave was very frustrating. I mean, again, they thought this is something any business can do. And micro-entrepreneurs are really squeezing so many of these small, under-20 employees. But the city doesn't even recognize that, and who do they go to when it's time to the Money and who who's having trouble pulling the permits? Who's who's paying extra for things uh, because they don't have a, a man in the bureau to go to? And it's those ones that are already getting squeaked. So, what are the kind of things it's going to take for the politicians, though, to see? that, to understand that. Is there anything? I mean, when they see a small business that's got five people, they see that, they don't understand also there's thousands of those out there. Right. I mean, they they understand there are thousands of them out there, but right. they don't understand how they operate and how they tick. There was more support for the Small Business Advisory Council um, under Mayor Adams, but we've seen just declining support since. Well, I think that's an interesting question that Mark raises, though, because you have the small business owners who, as you said, are so busy that they don't really have time to interface with the city processes. And you have representatives, you know, who don't really understand what they're going through. How are we going to bridge that disconnect? Not that you should have all the answers. I thought that the original intent for the Small Business Advisory Council was really fantastic because you'd have bureau heads, you'd have staff from the different commissioner's offices all coming together monthly to discuss issues and present concerns. And I learned so much about things like the sewers and oil traps. I mean, things like I don't have I don't have a um, restaurant, but I was able to share with the restaurants in my business district why those costs were going up and, and the problems and how much that's costing to maintain our sewer system. But I I learned a lot, and I felt there was an opportunity for our city leadership to learn a lot about how what we need and what works for us and how we could coexist. I feel like that structure's broken down quite a bit. The, the council still exists, though, right? I'm actually not totally sure. If- you know, this is a, a key time for Portland. There's a mayoral election coming up. So if there, um, I mean, as small businesses out there listening that have these same concerns are feeling the same thing, I mean, there's opportunity to kind of put these questions to the candidates to get a sense because it does start there. You know, you mentioned in your experience, Sarah, you just felt like it was a friendlier administration under Mayor Adams. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, than you see now. So as small businesses, you know, I mean, this is how it works. This is if this is the big issue you're concerned about, you know, be sure you're asking Ted Wheeler and, and Jules Bailey and the other candidates, you know, where they stand on this. So who are the key people within their administration? Because it's usually not the mayor who's doing other things. Who are the key people that, that the business owners need to talk to then? What are their roles? Well, back in the day, Adams was 
was very committed to this, and he actually sponsored the organization by having uh, some staff that, that would attend the meetings and take the minute. It wasn't a big commitment, but it was enough of a commitment to show support. Hales pulled all that completely. Wow. Adam's economic advisor would show up to all those meetings, and, and he, he... Skip Newberry. Right. Skip, yeah. that's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but he's, I think he's off... Head of the he's Technology Association. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. yes, and advocating for uh, small businesses, but in a different, you know, on the kind of the software startup yep. so on I the first, technology side. When I first met Skip, we actually were trying to get some funding for startups in Oregon. And Skip brought Sam Adams to an event we had that we had about 300 startup founders show up and talk about how they grow their businesses. And I think that's where Sam really opened his eyes to, there's hundreds of people here. So that, Skip really does get it. Absolutely. I agree. Let's talk about the role that small businesses play in the overall economy. We mentioned a statistic earlier, I think, that they provide 70% of new jobs. So that's so huge. You know, how can they not have a voice with their own city, city leaders? I think Sarah nailed it, and I'm sure she can talk more, and so can the other uh, business owners that are here. I mean, it's just, you're so busy. I mean, running a business, um, maintaining any kind of work-life balance. I mean, the fact that, that you, Sarah, found the time to to get involved, you know, with the advisory committee is huge because it's just, it takes so much energy and mental strength, I think, to, to maintain a small business, to overcome all the challenges that are there and still have a family life or with your partner or, or travel or whatever it is that you need to kind of feed your soul. You know, finding the time to have that voice in government and to push for positive change is just, it's just not in the cards for most people. But you're exactly right. I mean, when we say Oregon is a small business state, it absolutely is a small business state. We hear about the big employers. We know Intel employs, you know, 18,000 people and Nike's out there, you know, hiring another 5,000 and Under Armour's coming to town. And, you know, I mean, you hear the names of the big employers all the time, but, you know, all the data that we look at shows that the real engine uh, behind the economic recovery has been small businesses that are adding two, three employees here and there. So it's huge that they are able to find the support that they need and they're not squeezing out, as Sarah said, by being kind of in the middle, the one that kind of bears the brunt of, you know, the fees that are put upon them. Well, what I was saying, you know, we are squeezed by these large businesses that are pinging on our bread and butter. And then we have these micro entrepreneurs who, that are figuring out how to do what we're doing without all that overhead. And so like we made it through the recession without laying anybody off from our business. But, wow. but, but that took a toll on mm-hmm. our business to keep those people. And so what a lot of our um, decision makers, you know, they say, okay, the economy's back in full swing. Okay, now it's time to deal with deferred maintenance. So this is who we're going to look to. And those big guys, a lot of them have huge tax breaks, right? So we can't look to them for that. These micro entrepreneurs are really existing, you know, kind of hand to mouth, and but yeah. some of them are killing it. But they're but they're under the radar. No, nobody and there's a sharing into that. economy element there that doesn't necessarily Oh, we're finding huge competition from people who have no overhead. They're mm-hmm. running yep. small businesses out of their homes. Or in a co-working space. Yep. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about things mom and pops can do that the big guys can't. You know, that Amazon and Nike and Under Armour and, you know, uh, Intel can't do. And customer service has to be a huge part of an advantage 
I was going to say ding, ding, ding. (laughs) I mean, that's it. And that's where we have the advantage over those big guys and those little guys because those little guys don't have the capacity to be on the phone, to be present because that's all pretty much online. That's what we do best, super knowledgeable about what our product offerings are and um, and really passionate about making sure everyone gets just the perfect thing. I think, uh, too, technology has really helped in that regard. So as a small business owner, a consumer-facing business, that has the brick and mortar store to make sure that you're kind of tapping all the technology out there that allows you to have that good memory that maybe you don't really have about what that consumer bought last time they were in there. You know, there's only so much you can keep in your head all the time. So there is a lot of great technology that's out there for small businesses, and sometimes it's it's worth investing. I also think, too, this the investing where you can in the service providers um, so that you can forecast financially. There, there's certainly software out there that can help you with that kind of financial forecasting, but uh, when you can afford to hire that, you know, even just for a consulting on a consulting basis to kind of set you up for the year on for taxes. And so being able to look out six months and kind of look at, you know, worst case scenarios during that time, paying a little bit up front to a consultant that can come in and help make sure that you're hitting, you're asking yourself all the right questions so you're as financially prepared as possible can be a really smart investment. I also think local is kind of the new organic. So a lot of Portlanders want to shop local, local stores, restaurants, things made here locally, the new PDX made shop that's over by Powell's support land, which has a network of local companies that has like 40 or 50,000 people that want to shop locally. And I think that's stuff that's pretty uniquely Portland as well. That's where Portland is friendly. We were talking uh, about when, where is Portland friendly for business and where is it not as a citizenry? I mean, locals, Portland's probably one of the best cities in the country to kind of start. People like to experiment here. They want to know where they're shopping. Portlandia is Portlandia for a reason, you know, and you know, there's some truth to a lot of that. You want to know where things come from. You want to make that personal connection. And if you want to start a business that's a little offbeat and funky and takes some, people are willing to experiment with around food or beer or drink. I mean, cideries are, you know, going through the roof. They're growing faster now than craft brewers as a percentage. And so it just kind of shows that, you know, Portlanders as citizens are willing to kind of embrace that and seek it out. I mean, it's on the, the city side where you might kind of get that, you know, maybe it's not as friendly as it could be. I wonder what advice Steve Stanich and John Helmer would have. Well, we'll find out right after a short break. Welcome back to Biz 503. I'm Mark Grimes with Rebecca Webb. Welcome back to the studio, John Helmer III of John Helmer Haberdasher and Steve Stanich of Stanich's. Glad to have you back. And Suzanne Stevens, editor at the Portland Business Journal. She's still with us along with Sarah Shaul, owner of Black Wagon Boutique, who also consults for the uh, formerly with the Portland Small Business Advisory Council. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sarah. So we were just talking about the, the advantages that small operations have over large service or product providers. Oh, just to name one, say Amazon. So if you have some, you know, as a consumer, you have a choice. It's much easier, of course, to shop online and have something delivered by drone to your door, right? (laughs) (laughs) So how do you as a a consumer choose instead to shop locally? What would your customers tell us, do you think, John? Well, I think more so these days, it's kind of part of the experience because sitting at home, online, on a computer, and then it arrives, I mean, you don't get any of that personal touch, any connection. So when people come into 
our store. Their eyes are kind of wide open there. It's almost like a museum. So it's it's kind of the total experience. And just having that connection, knowing that they're helping a local family, I think that is very important. And I think as we move more towards technology and more on our smartphones, that there'll be a reaction to come back to some of the basics and having that personal touch. So do you have kind of a program for staff, like when they come in the door and kind of how to greet and welcome people? Certainly, yes. Mm -hmm. We start off with kind of a canned approach maybe, just to tell them this is how you might want to do it, but just wanted to see how we all do it, and then make it your own. So we definitely want them to be coming. It's like they're coming into our home, and we're welcoming them into our home, and we want to say goodbye when they leave, and just kind of those uh, personal touches. Mm -hmm. What about you, Steve? I know you guys have have had a business philosophy that dates back to your parents as far as how uh, you know your employees are going to behave toward the customer. Well, it's almost like the cheers mentality where everyone knows your name. We started out with like one pennant and we have thousands and people would come in and say, well, why don't you have my university? And we'd say, well, why don't you mail it to us? <laughs> and so it's a hassle keeping them clean. But every summer, once every couple years, people come back since 49 to see if their pennant's still there. Oh, and, that's perfect. and what we started doing years ago was having them sign it and date it. So now we, uh, now the grandchildren, or we've got four or five generations that come back and they want to make sure that their pennant's still there. So mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of a, a deal of reinforcing. And as I said earlier, both my parents were kind of a pay it forward. And so people appreciate that the more you give back to the community, the more there is. And I was just talking to our produce guy who's pretty big and getting bigger. And he said his father told him that big isn't always better and sometimes less is more. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a small business, I ran two places and it was uh, not easy. And just running one is now a full-time deal. If you're going to do it right in a small business, there's a lot of chains, et cetera. But in the small business, the owner is the, the person on call, and you better take the calls. Right. Well, I think you brought up something really important, like with the pennant thing. It wasn't a marketing concept. It was something that developed authentically and connected with people and connected with people locally. And uh, we, we uh, the health department comes by all the time and says, can't you get some of that hamburger juice? We don't call it grease off of them. And we call it juice, the ground chuck. And I said, I, I said these pennant, and we clean them all the time. But, but uh, And they're going, are you going to keep that up there? And I said, I have to. I said, if the grand-grandmother grand, comes in here at 95 and says, you took my pennant down, I, I don't, I get yelled at enough. My, uh, they say that <laughs> your parents don't dictate, but my parents are buried right behind Stanich's in the Rose City Cemetery, and they're dictating from the grave every day to me. <laughs> so, so I don't need anybody else mad at me that I took their pennant down. Okay. Now, they may eventually dissolve, right. but I'm not, I'm not taking it off the wall. <laughs> Real quick, Stanich's story. So 33 years ago when I started dating my wife, she said, well, let's go to Stanich's for a burger. And I said, 
go to where? That's about where the relationship ended. She's like, you don't know Stanishes? And uh, yeah, we went there for burger and have been back ever since. God bless you. <laughs> Apparently she was able to overlook that more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Many things she's overlooked. From. So just talking about that hamburger grease for a second. Semantics is very important. Ground check on hamburger. Yeah. All in the delivery. Yeah. Really trying to get to quality. <laughs> and the idea that small businesses have a unique ability to keep an eye on that. The larger companies, they are relying on so many layers of employees to get things out the door. So that has to be a huge advantage. The problem is when you fully rely on systems, you do lose that quality and interpersonal touch both with customers, but also with your relationship to the products themselves, you know. And so we fine-tooth comb over everything that we bring in. If there's any minuscule flaw, it gets sent back. And a lot of this, and then the communication involved, with it's a lot of extra work, which a lot of businesses, they don't even implement those kinds of uh, details. Right. Oh, that leads into a really good question here from the talk board. Small businesses often sell high-quality products, but is the steep price tag a deterrent? It's really a good question because, you know, I decided to do all my holiday shopping, uh, sending made in Portland things. Oh, and nice. It was expensive. <laughs> Everybody loved what they got. <laughs> but uh, I think the price was higher if I hadn't done that. I mean, I feel like this leads into a much bigger conversation. Small businesses, we just can't compete on price for one, for one thing. Higher quality is going to be more expensive, but there's so much behind that. I mean, look at what's happening with these factories in Bangladesh with these mm -hmm. collapsing factories and people dying. And when people really know how these quote-unquote affordable things are made, I think I think there's there's a lot more to be learned about that. I think there's the film that just came out, like The High Cost of, I can't remember the name of the film. High Cost of Living Cheap or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's disgusting mm -hmm. when you learn the materials and the lifestyles of the people putting these things together. People really knew they'd be quite happy paying a few extra dollars. And you go to these restaurants and you're not complaining about paying, you know, boutique burger, I guess. <laughs> and um, because it's delicious and you feel good about it. And I think it's the same with our customers. They feel good shopping with us and they know, you know, there's integrity behind that it's product. It's really interesting that you mentioned that. And I bet you could speak to this, Suzanne. There is actually a push to get more manufacturing back uh, locally and you know, in the U.S. and even in Oregon. Yeah, that's, that's probably the big pressure on the larger companies. I mean, we feel it, we hear it more here. You know, people are more thoughtful. I mean, people want to buy organic, you know, products. People want the personal touch of, you know, having their hat fitted and being able to be there and feel it and the quality and, and, and you know, as Sarah said, feel good about where it came from. Um, but I think there is a lot of pressure on the big companies to now be looking at where they're sourcing things. You know, Nike with the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal that passed, you know, said they're going to bring 10,000 manufacturing jobs back here. There's a give and take there. You know, you can operate a, uh, a good factory in a developing country and provide good jobs to people. But managing that process and making sure you're on top of it is really, really challenging. But, Rebecca, I think what you're talking about, the onshoring that we're hearing about, part of that is because people want to know where their goods come from. And that's kind of the advantage that smaller businesses have right now and you know in addition to just the quality customer service the being able to to hold and feel and compare the the quality of the product is there another advantage is that people you know they can tell you where that product came from or where that chicken was raised <laughs> definitely <laughs> so 
What about the makeup of our neighborhoods and the ethnicities, which are always changing? I don't think that, uh, or maybe the larger companies um, and national and international companies can certainly learn those sort of demographics over time, but the small mom-and-pop operation has to find out about them first. You observe firsthand what's happening on your street. What I was thinking more is supporting these small businesses makes our city interesting. Who doesn't love to travel? You travel, you go to different cities, and what you start seeing are these footprints that are the same everywhere you go. The same, this box and that box and this box and that box. Every single... Strip mall. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they, they've, they've reinvented them so they don't look like strip malls. They've turned them inside out. They've created courtyards and food. You know, they, these developers have gotten very crafty. Um, what's so beautiful about Portland is we still have these really beautiful, distinct neighborhoods with these great businesses that are that are locally owned and operated and they add the flavor that makes this city and really is what makes the Portlandia the what makes this a tourist destination. So, you know, I hope Portland can maintain that. She's on like a psychic yeah, wave with our listeners. Like, are you talking stuff in the tech board on your, your phone over there? We just um, got a question. So from the talk board, uh, how do these new small businesses fit in with the neighborhood ethics regarding things developing around gentrification right now? So talk about the small businesses' role in the neighborhood right. because are they more or less likely to stay? Well, I'll tell go? you, I actually, there's a they're really – Awesome example in our neighborhood. I'm on North Mississippi Avenue. You know, there's lots of talk about gentrification in that neighborhood and talk that goes all the way back to Emanuel Hospital raising homes to expand where a lot of African-Americans lived and to expand their hospital. And they're finally coming clean about that and talking about that and and developing awareness about that. In our neighborhood, we have one of the last black-owned, the Masonic Temple on the corner of Mississippi and Fremont. And they were dealing with some very serious, again, this is one of those examples where the city didn't quite get what was going on, they were getting dinged, I think, in around $60,000 because they had an illegal food pod. But they they needed that food pod to exist, to continue to stay. And the, the whole neighborhood rallied around them and helped them. And not just the businesses, but also the community members. We all came together because we did not want to see this last African-American business disappear. And so... Uh, and we worked with people um, at BDS, and um, it's great. It's been a wonderful success story, and they were able to renovate their food cart pod. And but yeah, it's and there's a, other things that are happening too. Like the Rebuilding Center offers um, internships for um, at-risk youth, and um, through another organization called Buy Up, I believe. But it's basically a public-private partnership to help at-risk youth have internships and jobs in the businesses on Mississippi Avenue. And those, those things are great to hear because they are organically happening, you know, because the business owners are, um, they love the neighborhoods, they love where they are. But, you know, you look at some of the other neighborhoods that were a decade, couple decades ahead of kind of where North Mississippi is. You look at Hawthorne right now, our division, you know, those neighborhoods are changing so fast and they are the small businesses that the kind of legacy businesses that have been there a long time, mm-hmm. um, you know, sole ownership businesses are they it's comes back to the real estate. I mean, that real estate is really valuable. So I'm not going to blame any small business owner that's going to sell out to a developer that's going to pay them three times what they, you know, the they thought the value of that was. And then a multifamily unit goes up or something like that. So anyway, it's it's it, we're seeing kind of this progression of and so, you know, seeing what's happening on Hawthorne and Division, it's very encouraging to hear 
here, what's happening on North Mississippi? I call that, um, you know, the end justifies the means, et cetera. I never thought it would happen to Fremont. It's happened to Belmont, et cetera. We have, right now we have... uh, I think it's a thousand. They call it low-income housing, 750 square feet. Uh, the city put in to get the revenue. There's not one um, parking place, and 200 cars are now parked on the streets. They just pour, tar- they're tearing down on Fremont the second one, and they're spending. They're paying millions of dollars to developers, and I don't. I I understand the people selling out, but the problem is the seven, um, they call it affordable housing, it's 700 square feet. The government pays 750, the person pays 750, and the people that live in the neighborhoods now have 200 more cars parked in front of their houses, etc. And the small businesses. And and we're we're one of, from 42nd to 57th, that have a parking lot. Mm -hmm. It used to be you couldn't build in Portland without parking. Now what we're trying to do is get everyone not to get on TriMet, not have a car, I guess become New York City. But um, the the problem is they just, um, another guy just sold out two little small houses on Portland, on Fremont, mm. and there's going to be another, you know, small income with no parking whatsoever. In Fremont, if you've been up and down it, it has changed, not necessarily for the better. The traffic is crazy. Total agreement with that. I'm, I live right off of uh, North Williams, and we're experiencing the same thing, division, all that. But I would add, uh, you know, we have these, in the real estate market, these golden eggs, and my my concern is we're going to destroy those golden eggs, too, because when you start raising all these rents, first of all, I, I'm concerned that my employees can't live, you know, that's, that's a problem. And then um, the other problem, and I'm telling you, Raising the minimum wage a, a dollar or two isn't going to solve that problem. The, the real estate market is is pretty out of control, but also the commercial real estate market as well. And what, if we're if you don't have concerned, caring property owners that really care about the makeup of the neighborhood, you're going to see our communities turning into those footprints that you see everywhere you go. And it's just going to be big box. And and what we are already seeing quite a bit of is, um, you know, traditional retail being taken over by more service-oriented businesses. So you're having less eyes on the street, less interaction. I mean, shopping is a fun activity. People do that, especially when they're on vacation, but it's something you do on the weekends or when you uh, have your lunch break. You do with friends, you do with family. And um, my concern is that if we don't get a hold of this uh, runaway market, a lot of that's going to go away. I think that's one of the challenges is, you know, and. 0708, everybody had their behinds handed to them. So the real estate people are at least now seeing a, well, explosive growth, but everything comes in cycles. So what do you think might be on the other side of it? Will we see a downturn? Do you think that might benefit local mom and pops? or anybody? I don't think we're going to, uh, it's, you know, the as far as the real estate market goes, it's not going to change in this year. And For the probably, Yeah, future. and probably <laughs> not into 2017, whether it's the residential or the commercial side. And you know, Rebecca and I have talked about this before, just affordability is the 
issue right now in Portland. And I think if we were going to look at it in a positive way, because we all, the issues out there, everybody's talking about the livability, you know, living where you work. You have new seasons now already trying to raise their wage because that's one of their big concerns is they want their employees can't live anywhere near their, these amazing stores that we all love to go shop at. But the people who work there are taking a bus from, you know, across town. And so affordability is a huge issue. And I think that if there's a positive way to look at it right now, is that we're not where San Francisco is. We're not where New York is. We're not where Seattle is yet. I mean, we're small enough, and we've heard about this with just kind of the tech community, too. Sure. What kind of a tech community do we want here? One that's welcoming to everyone, whether we, whatever your color is, your, your, your gender. Um, we're small enough that people are talking and they're collaborating, and they want to find solutions. I don't know what the solution is, but we are not penned in the way that some of these larger communities are. We have to leave it there. Wow, what a place. Yeah, really. <laughs> to, but it was actually a nice conclusion. It sounds like it's going to be up to us, the citizens of Portland, to decide. Suzanne Stevens, Portland Business Journal. Thank you so much, John Helmer III, for being with us from your historic haberdashery. We have Sarah Shoal. Just say it. Uh, Shoal. Shoal, Shoal. Uh, with Black Wagon, where I'm going to be shopping soon. We didn't give you a chance to give a mini commercial for your business. It's Baby uh, Boutique. Uh, well, we focus on uh, children, newborn, all the way to 14 years old. Oh, mm-hmm. those really big babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Sarah, thanks very much Thank for being you. with us. And, of course, Steve Stanich from Stanich's, which I can't believe they were even able to open this morning after the big, raucous crowd there last <laughs> Thank night. Thank you, Portland, for your loyalty. Thanks for joining us today on Biz 503 on Portland Radio Project. Have a great weekend.